Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Hello, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Um, I've been having problems with the Skype sound quality lately, so do me a favor, guys, and um, if for some reason I'm not uh, doing so well as far as sound quality, let me know in the chat room. Uh, welcome to this edition of V Radio. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. I want to thank everybody for uh, you know, those of you who have supported me. In my situation, I'm sure some of you have read what is now two blog posts, uh, what's going on in my home, but it's not just about me. I wanted to make it bigger than what's just about me. Um, <clears throat> basically, I'm kind of watching everything that Jock talks about happen around me, and I've already been kind of seeing that for a long time. Um, and basically... I'm actually, you know, doing this show solo because it's kind of like a personal thing. It's like an editorial. Although I'm going to be calling in a lot of statistics during the course of my editorial. Um, today I went out, hopefully, trying to find a job, and it was really tough. Uh, and there were a lot of people out there that, um, you know, they just they, it, it's like you can even tell some of them want to help you, but they can't. You know, it's just that simple. They, you know, there are no jobs. It doesn't come down to them not liking you. It doesn't come down to anything else. It's just they cannot afford it. And um, I just kind of looked at the inhumanity of it and what, more specifically, what money causes people to do and, and to overlook. Um, I also watched a video today that was circulated um, from Russia today. Uh, America's income gap reaches shocking peaks. And they revealed in this video that apparently the income gap in New York City alone is higher than it is in India, as in in a third, essentially almost third world country where we outsource everything to. There's an interesting uh, dichotomy there. But the point is, though, um, could you post bibliographies for statistics later? Or, oh, I'm sorry. Um, without question, if you go to my blog. I'll just link it here, but you can go to my blog at vradio.org, v-radio.org, and click blog. I'm just going to go ahead and drop the uh, um, link here in the chat. But, yeah, but it's, that'll take you to my blogger site, and it's the current blog. The other links, as far as statistics, will come from some of the other articles that I've been finding on mostly AOL News, which has been surprisingly good. Um, it's kind of the only mainstream news that I look at, and it's because you can selectively pick what articles you want to read. And I've just been finding more and more articles lately that kind of reinforce our position. So first I'm going to read from my blog. You can read along with me, as I said earlier, at vradio.org. You click on the blog tab, and it will take you to my red and black blog. Um, I wrote this yesterday when I was just steaming angry about something that had taken place um, in my home. And I, it wasn't just one thing, actually. It's, it's a combination of things. And the reason this is relevant is that, as I said earlier, uh, you know, I can just see Jack's you know, talks about humanity and the effects that income has, you know, and scarcity has, and it immediately causes criminal-like behavior. And we're going to get into some of that here. So this is a bit of a rant, um, so you'll have to bear with me, but I kind of decided I needed to say something personal. In fact, I started with, 
this is an editorial and somewhat of a rant, be forewarned, but I entitled it, No, I Mean It, The Economy is Failing. The reason I named it that is because, I mean, just not long ago, actually, we had this guy that I guess they were arguing with on the Colbert forums, and he was quoting all these statistics, and when I tried to, he also said he was going to defend the current system in his, in his statistics, and he said that the, the poverty level has been raising consistently every year, but at the same time, I'm getting all these statistics that says that the wealth gap is increasing. Somehow this doesn't make any sense to me, but we'll get into that here. People seem to wonder why I'm as passionate about this direction as I am. They ask me why I have lost my faith in the monetary system. I live in Michigan, as many of you know. Technological unemployment is up close and personal, as the auto industry and other manufacturing that was done here is drying up due to automation or... Sorry about that, folks. Um, I had a brief moment there where um, the uh, my Skype dropped the call for some reason. Um, I'm going to go ahead and type here, refresh if you can't hear me. Anyway, let me know if you guys can't hear me in the chat room. Can you hear me now? Sorry about that, guys. Like I said, Skype's been acting up lately. It's not my internet connection, um, but there's something going on with Skype and its sound quality. Anyway, so I'm going to go back to the blog. I don't know where I left off, so I'm just going to start over. People seem to wonder why I'm as passionate about this direction as I am. They ask me why, I lo they ask me why I've lost my faith in the monetary system. I live in Michigan, as many of you know. Technological unemployment is up close and personal. As the auto industry and other manufacturing that was done here is drying up due to automation or outsourcing, the service sector, exactly as Peter suggested it would, is drying up as it is being overwhelmed and slowly also being automated. I was in a department store just the other day and saw as now the self-scan lines, basically the ones with the automated kiosks, take up half of the checkout lanes in the store. These used to be manned by actual people who were depending on those jobs. Not long ago, there was a video store in the area. It closed down a few months ago. I had a roommate who used to work there and lost their job because of it. A lot of people blame Netflix for this and services like it, not to mention illegal downloading. But I also saw at that same department store another reason. Technology has allowed them to automate an entire video store. You slide your credit card or debit card and choose from a long list of new releases, which is what most people rent anyway, and it spits out your DVD. If you're late, it just charges your card. If you don't pay it after $20 of late fees, the DVD is yours to keep. But remember, according to Austrian economists, technological unemployment is a fallacy. After all, their books from the 40s are older say so. Because clearly, the author of Economics in One Lesson, Hazlitt, had some level of comprehension of the notion that they might automate an entire video store in a device no larger than a soda pop vending machine Actually, he would not have even considered the existence of plastic discs that contain entire films in the first place. Or that people were going to go on a computer and order a, or order a video online. Wait, no computers, no Internet either, when he was writing that book. Or that they could steal entire films in a few minutes without even physically taking anything. 
They always claim that somehow more jobs are being created by any technological innovation, but I don't see the jobs lost by video stores closing down all over the country and all of the jobs associated with them being replaced by building some vending machines. And there are obviously no new jobs created by the making of these automated kiosks that are replacing cashiers in stores. Where are the jobs uh, basically where are the jobs that are supposedly created by fully automating the auto manufacturing plants? Maybe a couple more technicians needed, but that is nothing compared to all of the people put out of work. I remember going to the Work First program here in Michigan. It's a program for the unemployed who are seeking assistance from the government. I was not surrounded by welfare moms. I was surrounded by people from all walks of life, defeated and ashamed blue-collar workers, white-collar workers who were in a total state of shock. The guy sitting next to me told me his story. They always tell you to get educated. Well, he had a degree in business and engineering. His company told him that they were expanding to other countries and they needed him to help people in other countries learn his job. Well, expanding actually turned into downsizing and then outsourcing. They fired him and closed down his local plant, and now he was at the welfare office too. He was educated, hardworking. Why did he lose his job? Was it because of regulations? Was it because of taxes? Or was it because, as a paid professional here in the United States, he would make ten times or more what the people he trained to do his job in Mexico would be paid? And actually expect maybe to have a vacation health care, a retirement? Politicians make me laugh when they say they are going to create jobs. The Republican conservatives say that if they cut taxes and, do re and deregulate, that the jobs will come back here. What happens instead, almost without fail, is that businesses use the new money that they suddenly have to help them build their infrastructure in countries with little to nothing in the way of minimum wage and no unions. I have told the story many times of how my friend Rafael from Mexico explained that these companies really want is a workforce that is willing to accept what desperate people will accept. They don't want a worker who holds his head high and might actually have the gall to request that he or she works in an environment that is safe. They don't want workers to ask for the day off to see their son's baseball game or their daughter's dance recital. They don't want workers who would like to have a decent lifestyle when they could have workers who are so desperate from their circumstances that even the below-poverty lifestyle is slightly better than the starving-to-death lifestyle they used to have before the big companies came to do them a favor. And the reason I say do them a favor is frequently when I debate with uh, capitalists, they, I bring up outsourcing, they say that you know the situation in China and some of these other countries with like a, what amounts to slave labor conditions, we're doing them a favor. Anyway, I just got done talking to Alberto, a Zeitgeist Movement member from Mexico. He's actually going to be an upcoming radio show, on an upcoming radio show, and I'm, I'm actually trying to talk him into doing his own Spanish show. And we're going to talk about outsourcing. Oops, sorry about that. And the real situation in Mexico. And what he told me is, surprise, now that the capitalists have found labor markets where people are even worse off than the people of Mexico, now they are moving there. Imagine that. Does this mean the people of Mexico need to be more competitive? That's what they told us. Telling us we need to be more competitive translates into we need to be willing to live even closer to slave-like conditions than the other guy. We are now to the point that competition in, labor, in the labor market has nothing to do with being the better worker, but being the more desperate worker. They don't care about work ethic. They will make you have a work ethic by threatening your family with poverty. 
I take a moment to, to break off with that just to kind of point something out. Have you ever really thought about what it means when your former employer puts you down as a no-hire, a no-rehire, or more to the point, when they are a poor reference for you? Have you ever thought about what that really means? I mean, you don't really consider it much because, well, before, finding another job was pretty easy. But, you know, if a former employer decides to say that you're a terrible person and never to rehire you, which, yeah, it's supposed to be illegal, but they're allowed to say they wouldn't rehire you, you're, they're essentially sentencing your family to poverty. And it can be over the dumbest things. One of the only jobs I've ever walked out on was because the guy was just a total prick. It was a manager training store. He was just being above and beyond because he was hoping to land himself his own store. And that guy has basically made sure that I can never work in that chain of stores ever again, if, at least if I want to mention that I have any um, experience. And essentially what he was wielding over me as he was lording over me and mistreating me was the notion, I'll put your family out, you know, you better do what I say. Once again, remember, folks, this is supposed to be the system that breeds the most freedom. Anyway, I'm going to go on here. How long do people really think this can go on? Do they really think that these companies won't replace the slave workers they have now with machines the moment it is cheaper? Today on Facebook, I talked to one of my one-time listeners who made the statement to me, have you considered getting a job with three question marks at the end of it for the sake of being dramatic? I was talking to him on Skype about it later, and he apologized. But like most people who hear about my situation, everyone is always full of advice that I have already followed and suggestions that I've already acted on. We are so conditioned that, quote, anyone can get a job that we really believe it. And when someone says they can't get one, it must mean they are lazy or picky or have not thought of something yet. During the course of the argument, he asked for my city and state, fully intent on proving me wrong. I gave him the information as to where I live, and about a half hour later, he messages me back saying, man, you're right, it really is bleak out there. Yes, I have thought about moving. One cannot do this when they have no money. Yes, I have thought about getting a car to expand my work area. One cannot do this when they have no money. Yes, I have thought about child care, because one of the issues is, is it's difficult to get a job because I don't have anybody to watch my kids. If I am lucky enough to get a job at, the, at a fast food place, and yes, I mean lucky, I will first have to hope that they can give me hours. Then afterward, still not have enough money to pay the bills as half of my paycheck would go to a daycare center. Yes, I have thought about going to school. See previous statements about this being impossible when one has no money, no car, and no child care. I answer and re-answer the same questions about, well, did you do this? Did you make that? Did you do this? And endure the same, well, you've got to do something, man. You have to make it happen. As if I can snap my fingers and produce child care or a job. It's like they don't understand that people actually do become homeless because they have tried everything and there is nothing left to try. The break off here again to say, it kind of confuses me that people in the zeitgeist movement don't understand this because that's kind of what the whole point is. The system is collapsing. It's happening to real people. And it's, it's difficult because some people, of course, are, you know, happen to be fortunate enough to living in places where it hasn't really hit as hard yet. Um, as I've quoted more than once, one of my fellow uh, candidates for Congress at one time pointed out that he felt that the situation in Michigan is just an example of what's going to happen all over the place. 
that it's like the test bed for let's just see how much we can get away with as far as wrecking an economy. So anyway, go back to the blog. My back is against the wall, and I laugh as people say that Jock's theories on behavior are bullshit because I am watching it in my own home. Before my divorce, things were fairly well balanced financially. We had enough of a surplus to cover things if a roommate fell on hard times and could not pay. Everyone got along reasonably well. If you bought food, you were confident that nobody would eat something they did not buy. We would help each other when needed, and the roommates who had cars would do their best to be sure the ones that didn't have cars got where they needed to go. Then the divorce happened, and everything got scrambled. The surplus went away, and it happened right around the same time as an economic downturn. And I watched as everyone's attitude in the house started to change. Theft of food that belonged to other roommates became the commonplace. People started writing their names on things. That worked for a while, then stopped working. So we started putting food in our bedrooms. That stopped working. Someone actually came into my room and took food off of my nightstand. These are all people I could trust implicitly with $20 bills laying around the house just six months earlier. And now they were breaking into my bedroom? These are not bad people. They came from decent neighborhoods, not the ghetto. But it doesn't take long for money and the lack of it to ruin anyone. My roommates started asking me to lower their rent. I had to pull out the bills and physically show them that they were already only giving me enough to break even and had only ever been giving me enough to break even. They started to resent me as if it was my fault that they needed to pay rent. They numbed themselves to the reality of the situation, was that, which was that if they wanted to continue to have electricity, gas, and a roof over their heads, that I needed the exact amount they were giving me and no less. This then strained our friendships. Everyone retreated into their rooms and rarely talked to one another. So then I stated, in, or as I stated in my previous blog about this, a roommate got an offer she could not refuse to move back in with her father and live rent-free. Remember, I've been posting a lot of links lately about how more and more people are living, moving in with their parents. Anyway, with her own car and a job provided for her, so she took the bus and left. Her boyfriend was kind enough to offer to stay long enough for me to find someone else, then lost his Walmart job the very next day because they didn't want to pay him disability when he was injured on the job. He is still here and trying to get something else, but in the meantime, he is basically just using my utilities and eating my food. I still very much appreciate what he is trying to do, but it is not making the situation any better currently. So then we come to my next roommate. I have known him for about eight years. He has sort of an obnoxious personality. So even his, and so um, obnoxious even that his own twin brother, who is also obnoxious in a completely different way, will not help him whenever he finds himself homeless. We sometimes played video games together, and he was literally lightheaded. We asked him why on voice chat, and he revealed that he had not eaten in a day or so, as the place where he was staying at with his drunk mother rarely had food. So for the second time in my life of knowing him, I brought him into my home and gave him his own room. He tried for six whole months to get a job. He was really trying. It just honestly takes that, lo honestly takes that long around here. And he even has a car. Though he did give himself certain standards, like he wouldn't work fast food. But apparently the embarrassment of him mooching off of me for six months was not a dishonor to him, but to work at McDonald's or another fast food place would have been social stratification. In any case, he did get a job and was a good roommate for a while, a year or so. But he also became the biggest culprit of food theft when things got tough. 
I had talked to him about the financial situation, and he made it very clear to me he had no plans to move out anytime soon. He was shooting for maybe next year. The various times that the topic came up, he always told me he had nowhere else to go and was very concerned that I might at some point kick him out. So then sometime last month, I get a phone call from an apartment complex. They contacted me as his current landlord to see what kind of tenant he would be. This is how I find out he's considering moving out. Though when I talk to him about it, he lies, and he says he was just looking into it and did not intend to move out. Again, this is someone who was so appreciative of the help I was giving him just a few months earlier. He tries to assure me that it is likely he won't get accepted for the apartment anyway, and that he, of course, will give me at least two months' notice before ever moving out. I would also take a moment to point out that this man goes to church regularly and is very offended if anyone ever badmouths Christianity. He preaches to anyone who will listen about Christ and how you should live your life honestly and all that. So today, he comes to my room with a very excited tone and tells me he has great news. The great news is that his approval for his apartment went through and that he will be leaving in 10 days. I ask him how this is great news, and he acts confused, as if I'm supposed to think it is really great that someone who is contributing about 40% of the household income has just informed me that I have 10 days to find a way to replace that income or lose my home. This young man read the book, How to Make Friends and Influence People, by Dale Carnegie. It is basically a book about how to brainwash and manipulate the people around you to think you are great. What is not good for him is that upon his insistence, I also read a good portion of the book. The more I read, the more I was disgusted, but I decided to study it so I could also know when someone was trying to use its tactics on me. Me could take a moment to kind of elaborate on this, because I don't know that I can you know, just describe it without some inflection, but imagine that you're sitting there and a guy comes up to you and he tells you that he's got great news. He's so excited and hyped. And he's getting ready to tell you, oh, by the way, I know that I'm supposed to give you $300 at the end of the month, but I'm not going to be able to. Isn't that great? You know, he didn't say that, of course. He said, it's great news that he has an apartment. And then just kind of, it was, it was, that's why I said it was Dale Carnegie-like, is because he was trying to make it a good thing somehow in my memory that he was stabbing me in the back. Anyway, I, um, oh, actually, this, I'm going to go back to the blog. This Christian and honest man tried to give me the news that he knows full well puts my family in a great deal of danger of losing our home and my children to the state in a positive tone of voice so as to prevent me from realizing he was actually knowingly and willingly fucking me over. I, the agnostic, leaning atheist, who thinks it is silly that Christians need a God to give them an excuse to be a decent person, took him in when nobody else, including his own family, would. These same Christians who insist you need to have a God in order to have a moral center. He himself would rant endlessly about atheists. I started to argue with him just a bit, but did not want my children to hear what I was getting ready to say to him. So he told me he was trying to be more courteous to me than some of my previous roommates had been. He was then trying to deflect the blame onto the couple who moved out, one of which was still living there, hoping to find a job so I didn't lose my house. He basically let his pregnant girlfriend move out of state, and stayed so that he can try to help me. But he was being more courteous. It's like he just said, well, I was trying to be more courteous than other people without any evidence to back that up. But because of the way he was conducting himself, he was thinking that this was just going to fly. You know, this is, and there's a reason that this is all relevant. As I said, this is not just about me. I'm talking about a somebody who, 
who thinks that they have a moral center, who thinks that they're an honorable person, who's extremely judgmental of other people when they are dishonest or narcissistic or selfish. And he has compromised himself because of the financial situation and has even taken steps to brainwash himself into believing that it's perfectly fine that he's doing that. And this sort of sociopathic narcissism is just fluent throughout our system. So, anyway... So I let him escape to his room, where I imagine he was doing a great job of lying to himself about he had done the right thing by giving me 10 days' notice that he was not going to be paying the rent I was going to need at the end of the month. Then I put my kids to bed and went to the room and let him have it. I brought him back to reality by pointing out that 10 days' notice is not a courtesy at all, and that after I had helped him out when nobody else would, he was going to abandon us without any chance to replace him. I called him out for that uh I called him out for the way he had conducted himself, trying to act like he was doing me a favor by moving out, and like I should be happy about the great news he was giving me that he was going to leave us on the very edge of homelessness. He stood there looking at me blankly and did not say a word. This was probably better, as I think I probably would have smacked him. Then I slammed the door and went back to my own room. Mind you, this is also an example of the money situation affecting my behavior. This is not just every own plate the notion that I would have even gotten that angry at him. What am I angry at him over? He's not going to give me some fictional pieces of paper? You know, this is what this is what it means. This is why um, when, for example, in Anton, uh, Robert Anton Wilson's books, he talks, he calls money bio-survival tickets, and he talks about the psychology, you know, psychological impact that money would have on a person because it's linked directly to your survival. Anyway, over the course of the day, I had felt the money having its effects on me as well. I had to stop myself from being short with my children and everyone else. One of my friends wanted to tell me about the exciting new innovations in a video game we both played, and it literally went in one ear and out the other. Nothing that gave me joy was interesting at all anymore. I had a bunch of links open about various things going on in the world that I wanted to read about for possible future radio shows. I found myself deleting some of them out of some sort of feeling that I just didn't care about what was going on anywhere else. My appetite completely failed, and now I am numb. I should have been in bed hours ago. Like I said, I wrote this yesterday. This is the monetary system. Supposedly, it is just a means of trade so that we can all trade our various objects for other objects to survive. To me, it just seems evil. So, that's just the blog post. Um, and... Uh, one of this again is, as I brought this up, this is not like a pity party or anything. This is about the fact that these things, you know, really are happening. And I don't think that people really recognize that what Jacques is talking about in regards to the psychological impact of money is real. You know, think about it in yourself. You know, look for this is the reason it's so compelling to me, is that I'm watching it happen to me. Okay? And can you think of a moment in your life when stress over money-related issues caused you to be short with your children or with your significant other or perhaps, you know, uh, it has made you, you know, in some other way, you know, stressed out, worried constantly, you know? And I've seen that. This is one of the other reasons it was such a, a drain on me is that it was, it was very much a situation where I could feel my entire, like, you know, understanding you know, that I was even going to be able to exist being completely under the control of the circumstances around me. 
with I really did not have much, uh, like there's not really much I can do to, to fix them. I'm doing my best. But, you know, people end up homeless. It does happen. And I think that people looking at it from the outside, because they also don't want to believe that it can happen to them, okay? They they just, they're always full of, well, you've got to do this or you've got to do that. You know, they don't want to accept that that can happen to them. We just ignore that these people exist. We just ignore that the circumstances that create them exist. And yeah, sure, there are some lazy people who end up homeless, okay? But that's not what's going on here for, you know, in any case, take a look here. So now I'm going to read some news articles on this topic, okay? I have a few of them here. I'm going to provide you with the links here, although they are all in my blog, one at a time. Put them right here. Record gaps between the rich and the poor um, is actually the topic. So let me go ahead and um, pull up this article. Census finds record gap between rich and poor. Washington, September 28th, the income gap between the richest and poorest Americans grew last year to its widest amount on record as young adults and children, in particular, struggled to stay afloat in the recession. The top earning 20% of Americans, those making more than 100000 each year, received 49 to 4.4% of all income generated in the United States, compares with the 3 to 4% earned by those below the poverty line, according to newly released census figures. That ratio of 14.5 to 1 was an increase from 13.6 in 2008 and nearly double a low of 7.69 in 1968. A different measure, the the International Gini Index, found U.S. income inequality at its highest level since the Census Bureau began tracking household income in 1967. The U.S. has only the greatest disparity among Western and also has the greatest disparity among Western industrialized nations. At the top of the wealthiest, 5% of Americans who earned more than 180000 added slightly to their annual income last year, census data show. Families at the 50000 median level slipped lower. Income inequality is rising, and if we took into account tax data, it would be even more so, said Timothy Seating, a University of Wisconsin-Madison professor who specializes in poverty. More than other countries, we have a very unequal income distribution when co- compensation goes to the top and a winner-takes-all economy. i hearing that term a lot more lately. Lower-skilled adults age 18 to 34 had the largest jumps in poverty last year as employers kept or hired older workers for the dwindling jobs available, Speeding said. The declining economic fortunes have caused many unemployed young Americans to double up in housing with parents, friends, and loved ones, with potential problems for the labor market if they don't get needed training for future jobs, if there are any. Rhea Herdman, Jr., a senior policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation, a conservative think tank, agreed that consensus data show families of all income levels had tepid earnings in 2009, with poorer Americans taking a larger hit. It's certainly going to take a while for people to recover. The findings are part of a broad array of U.S. Census data being released this month 
that highlight the far-reaching impact of the recent economic meltdown. The effects have ranged from near-historic declines in U.S. mobility and birth rates to delayed marriage and the first drop in the number of illegal immigrants in two decades. The census figures also come amid heated political debate in the run-up to the November 2nd elections over whether Congress should extend the expiring Bush-era tax cuts. President Barack Obama wants to, wants to extend tax cuts for individuals making less than 200000 and joint filers making less than 250000 Republicans are pushing for tax cuts for everyone, including wealthy Americans. The 2009 census tabulations, which are based on pre-tax income and excluded capital gains, are adjusted for household size where data are available. Prior analysis of after-tax income made by the wealthiest 1% compared to the middle and low-income Americans have also pointed to widening inequality gaps, but only reflect U.S. data as of 2007. So let's go over the 2009 findings. The poorest poor are at record highs. The share of Americans below half the poverty line, 10,977 for a family of four, rose from 5 to 7 percent in 2008, 6 to 3 percent. It was the highest level since the government began tracking that group in 1975. The poverty gap between the young and the old has doubled since 2000, due partly to the strength of Social Security and helping buoy Americans 65 and older. Child poverty is now 21% compared with 9% for older Americans. In 2000, when child poverty was at 16%, elderly poverty stood at 10%. Safety nets are helping fill the health gaps. The percentage of children covered by government-sponsored health insurance, such as Medicaid and the Children's Health Insurance Program, jumped to 37%, or 27.6 million from 24% in 2000. That helped offset steady losses in employer-sponsored insurance. The 2009 poverty level was set at 21,954 for a family of four based on an official government calculation that includes only cash income. It excludes non-cash aid such as food stamps. One of the things we got here is uh, Sheldon Danziger, a University of Michigan public policy professor, said while the U.S. has developed policies to combat poverty, it has trouble addressing ever-widening income inequality. Even with the growing federal deficit and previous warnings by former Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan about soaring executive pay, an Associated Press JFK poll or GFK poll this month found that 54% to 44% most Americans support, uh, support raising taxes on the highest U.S. earners. Still, many congressional Democrats have expressed wariness about provoking the 44% minors so as to so close to election day. We're pretty good about not talking about income inequality. Is, is what Dan Zuger said. Now, the way that article was presented, it's got some statistics in it, and maybe it um, wasn't as uh, as good as I would like. There's a, if you go to this YouTube, though, I wish I could play it for you, but I don't have my stereo max. Uh, my stereo mix is not working right now, but um, one of the things that it says here is it brings up that, you know, in New York right now, you've got people laying on the street you know, homeless people, and walking past them are rich people who are buying $7,000 shoes. You know, so right, sorry, somebody was pointing something out to me, but um, when you watch this video in particular, it definitely covers this, 
and it throws out a lot of the numbers, but it also goes down there. But so several dozen billionaires make an equivalent of what 13 million full-time workers make. That's just insane. Right. The lucky few are um, shopping for shoes that are for thousands of dollars. And then just a few steps away from that, you got guys with their, you know, their uh, shopping carts and their, you know, because they're living right next to these people who are basically just walking over them and ignoring that they even exist. What kind of inhumanity is that? What do you tell yourself when you go into a store, you pass a homeless man who's pushing a shopping cart? What do you, what do you tell yourself when you walk past somebody like that and you go into a store and buy a shoe that costed you a couple thousand dollars or a bag that shopped you, you know, that costed you a couple thousand dollars. They, they, they actually interview a lot of people here about this. And I got to tell you, I got so angry when I was watching this film or this video. Um, largely, I mean, I had just gotten out of, you know, shopping around for jobs. And anyway, <sighs> okay. One of the other articles I have here is about Generation Homeless, the new faces of an old problem. 22-year-old Tony Torres sags exhausted onto the pavement just beyond a skate park where kids from his affluent Seattle suburb, uh, from this affluent Seattle suburb, Bellevue, flip tricks off of ramps to beat off uh, to the beat of a boombox. This place is a safe place to hang out until he knows whether he'll get a bed on this night at nearly at the nearby YMCA which donates its rec room as a shelter for young adults at night. His odds of getting a spot to throw a mat on the floor are about one in seven. Torres is joined by a few other worn-out, young-looking uh, young people who sling their packs and down, uh, sling their packs down and slump against the wall. They've all been on their feet all day, moving from park to park, job application to job application, library to library, anywhere they can hang for a few minutes before being asked to move along. Young adults are now the new face of homelessness. It's a group driven by two large converging forces, an economy that has been especially brutal on young people and the large numbers currently ex ex exiting foster care. Precise numbers are difficult to pin down, but based on a study done before the economy collapsed, an estimated 2 million young people ages 18 to 24 will be homeless nationwide this year. Two cities that are magnets for mobile young adults are reporting surging numbers of homeless young people at shelters targeted at that population. Seattle and San Francisco shelter workers say they are among only a handful of cities nationwide that offer shelter for, for young adults. We're turning people away in record numbers, said Christine Cunningham, executive director of Roots in Seattle, one of the pioneering young adult shelters in the country. Roots expects to turn young people away more than 2,000 times this year compared with about 200 times five years ago. This year, the 27-bed shelter expects to provide a place for to sleep for 542 young adults. In Portland, Oregon, another magnet for the young and homeless, the young adult segment increased by 25% last year, more than double the overall increase, 12% in homelessness for all age groups, said Natasha Dittwiller, research analyst for Oregon Housing and Community Services. 
Oregon counted 1,595 young people in this year's one-night snapshot of homelessness, and that's certainly an underestimate, she said. Yet of all the various segments of the homeless population, young adults probably receive the least attention, have the fewest resources applied to help them, and have the least amount of policy advocacy on their behalf, according to some experts. Being homeless is like a picture of someone screaming and no one coming to help, Torres said. Difficult to find jobs. Many people expect 18-year-olds who aren't in school to get jobs and be self-supporting. That may have been possible for their parents' generation, said Rachel Entrobis, director of San Francisco-based Transitional Age Youth Initiative, an agency that works to coordinate services for 18- to 24-year-olds. But that's not actually realistic anymore, meaning it's not realistic to expect these people to get jobs. Unemployment rates are higher among young adults than other age groups. In July, the youth unemployment rate edged over 19%, the highest July rate on a record since 1948. In 2009, 80% of college graduates moved home after finishing school, according to job listing websites, collegegrad.com, up to 77% in 2008 and 67% in 2006. Those without the training and family support of college graduates are hurting even more. The 30-year-olds are taking the jobs from the 20-year-olds because the 40-year-olds are taking the jobs from the 30-year-olds, said Mark Putman, a consultant for Building Changes, a nonprofit focused on ending homelessness in Washington State. These guys are truly employment victims of the recession. Nationally, a wage earner in a family with children has to make almost $18 an hour to afford the average two-bedroom apartment. In cities like Seattle and San Francisco, housing costs are even higher. I haven't even seen $18 an hour my entire life. In Seattle, for example, families must earn more than $21 an hour. California averages $25 an hour for affordable housing. That's out of reach for most, uh, for many young adults, especially those with no training. Curtis, 24, who didn't want his last name used, wound up staying in a young adult shelter after the place he was renting went into foreclosure. He hasn't been able to scrape together enough money to find a new place on his wages on his wages, parking cars for a luxury hotel in Seattle. Some places are asking like 1500 to two grand for deposit, he said. The whole situation just really sucks. Shane Thomas, 23, is one of an estimated 1,000 young adults believed homeless nightly in Seattle. He picks up jobs on fishing boats where he can, but despite the seasonal temporary gigs, he still winds up staying on the street and in shelters. I guess this guy is obviously just too lazy, you know, maybe if he worked a little hard. But this is what people don't understand. When the income gap increases, the prices make things unreachable. The thing about being homeless, you get stuck in one spot, he said. Might get a little more money in your pocket the next day, but you're still going to be broke. Now, out of foster care and onto the street, the economy, however, only compounds an even larger underlying problem the largest driver of the young adult homeless population is in the foster care system. States typically stop providing money for supportive foster care children at the age 18. Many wind up on the street. The majority of young people using the shelter system come from foster care, said Denise Wallace, mental health counselor at The Landing, a shelter for young adults in Bellevue, Washington. Nationally, the number of kids in foster care has been declining. The number of those turning 18 in the care of the state is on the rise increasing by 41% from 1998 to 2005, according to a report by Pew Charitable Trust. About 20,000 young people are um, a year age out of foster care.
Studies, including those done by Pew, also show that one in five of those who age out of, will be homeless within two years of leaving foster care. Half won't have a high school degree. Less than 3% graduate college. By the time they are age out of foster care at age 18, 20% of young women are already parents themselves, according to a University of Pennsylvania report. Another 40% are pregnant. For some of these young people, getting pregnant is a perceived way out of homelessness. There's a perception among young people on the street that if you are about to give birth, you can get housing. We've incentivized becoming pregnant, Cunningham said. Wait lists are just as burdening for housing for young families, but having a child does make a young person eligible for services not available to childless young adults. Families now account for about 40% of the homeless population, and the majority are headed by single moms. Yet the group driving this trend, young adults ages 18 to 24, is generally undercounted under, and underrepresented when solutions are envisioned. Relatively few resources are being directed to prevent them from producing new generations of homeless families. Thank you, Prophet, about the comment about homeschooling. Although the show was more than, was more than just homeschooling. I mean, you can have a decent community school. It's just that we're not doing enough to, you know, the reasons that homeschooling is succeeding has more to do with the fact that we're not really getting socially adjusted in school, at least not in a way I'd want to be adjusted. Let me back to my point. Um, Casey Jackson is part of the problem and part of the solution. At work at a homeless outreach center in Seattle suburb, Jackson shifts her seven-month-old daughter, Tiana, on her hip and juggles a cell phone in the other hand while she fields a call from a scared-sounding mom. The mom has no place to sleep tonight. Jackson is matter-of-fact on the phone and sounds older than her 22 years. She knows what it's like to be staring down a night without shelter. Jackson was homeless at 20. She had borne three children by 21. One died. One is now living with a grandparent, and one lives with her. She is another on the way as she struggles to make for, make for them what she had ever had, a stable home with a family under one roof. Children born to homeless mothers or who experience multiple episodes of housing instability, couch surfing, staying in motels, or shuttling between households when they are young often mirror that in their adulthoods. Jackson's own trajectory shows how homelessness can pan from generation to generation. She was born in a California jail. Her military father was deployed when his baby daughter was discharged from the jail medical ward. She spent her childhood shuffling between relatives. If I had to characterize my childhood in one word, it would be chaos, she said. She now volunteers her time to help other young people like herself and find stability in trying to get into college to study social work. People who don't grow up with the stable homes don't develop many of the coping strategies that let them transition into stable homes, lives as, stable home lives as adults, said Cunningham of Roots. See, more of that. What is that, guys? That is your environment shaping your behavior. Now, many have been abused, said Wallace, the counselor who works at the landing. There's a lot of trauma. So they get into some of their solutions. Uh... Basically, once you hit 18, you get dumped from the system and you're forgotten about. And the fact that we, you know, that the homelessness thing is rising in young people kind of proves my point. The economy is tanking. The kinds of jobs that people like that would have been dependent on are vanishing at an ever-increasing rate. You know, and it, it just, it scares me that people don't realize this stuff. And when I, you know, when I, I want to emphasize a little bit more on the unemployment issue, okay, because people have all these vague ideas about what's going to create jobs, okay, 
at the end of the day, nothing that any politician is going to do really short of nationalizing production and making jobs by essentially creating them out of thin air in the same way that, you know, they often do during wars is ever going to create jobs. There's nothing they can do short of like forcing businesses to stay here and employ people. We're basically clinging to a system that the foundation of which doesn't exist anymore. And when you try to talk to people about it, they would rather believe that you're wrong. So it's, it's kind of impossible. They get into denial. And all the solutions they give you, like, uh, you know, start your own business, that, that comes back down to the same catch-22. How do you do that if you don't have any money? And the statistics are against you. You know, only one-third of businesses succeed, and only one-third of the ones that succeed past the first year make it past the four, past four years. Okay, those are real hard statistics. Going into business for yourself is often suicide, and it requires an investment on your part that you probably cannot replace. But it, essentially, you, you kind of get to a point where you're, you're ice skating uphill. You know, you don't have, you, you know, you've gone so far down the hole, so to speak, that you cannot claw yourself out. And I, I just, it, it astounds me that people failed to grasp this. And I want people to understand that they're being conditioned to think that this system will save them, that it's always going to be there to help them no matter what. It, it just is not practical. So if anybody would like to call in, uh, the guest call-in number is 347-945-7747. Um, I'd like to bring you guys on and talk about this topic, since especially since it's just me. If you'd rather be added via Skype, my Skype is VTV115. Send me a message on Skype, and then I will add you to the call. You can take a look at what's going on here in chat. like people may or may not even be listening to me. <laughs> what are you guys talking about? Oh, if you can really relocate to New York, there's more help than others. I know we are in deep doo-doo too, but my son found work through a temp agency. They have child care for you. New York is the state that was actually uh, featured in that Russia Today video that I was not able to play for you guys because I don't have my uh, stereo mix that would allow me to play it for you on. Um, and the uh, the wealth gap there is so freaking outlandish. Um, Adrian, I just saw you log on to Skype. Would you like to be added to the call? If you would, PM me on Skype. Um, so I, I guess what I what I see around me is hold on a second, let me answer him. Let me go ahead and add Adrian, I guess. Okay. All right, I'm going to bring Adrian on. He's actually been on the show before. And uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in to V Radio, by the way. I know that this um, uh, show has been a bit impromptu as far as the way I, you know, my shows normally go, but I really wanted to do a show to talk about the reality of, of what's going on as far as our uh, economy. So... Let me bring on Adrian, and we'll see what he has to add tonight. Please visit my website, vradio.org, v-radio.org, like v-radio. Uh, there you will see archives of shows like this one and some considerably better, lots of great interviews, 
filmmakers, activists, um, Jacques Fresco, Roxanne Meadows, Peter Joseph, Ben Stewart of Chimatica, uh, Open Source Ecology. I mean, there's a lot of great programming available in my archives. Not to mention, you can go to the Must See TV section. There's a lot of links there to a lot of great documentaries that you can watch completely for free on the Internet. So right now, I'm looking for Adrian in my extremely large, there it is, contact list. That's what happens when you're VTV. So anyway, um, once again, thanks to everybody who has supported V Radio. And uh, whenever Adrian picks up, since I'm calling him right now, <laughs> oh, he says one moment. I guess he'll pick up when he does. I'll cut it off for now. But anyway, I'll call him back when he PMs me. Oh, and now? Okay. Trying to set up his mic. <laughs> All right, Adrian, let me know when you're ready. Anyway, um, I'll look over here in the chat again. I thought it was going to take a little longer to read that stuff, but I realized that some stuff just does not sound as good when you read it. So I don't want to bore the hell out of you guys. People have become very cold to each other. I was talking about Venus Project to a family member recently was told, uh, there have always been poor people and there will always will be. I nearly lost it. Yeah, you know, <laughs> self-appointed guardians of the status quo. Yeah, that's... As soon as you say something like that, it's like, this is the reason, actually, you know, it's like, oh, you know, that was the comment I wanted to make. Okay. Ironically, you know, I'm watching Russia today, and one of the things that they described, like, about these people who, um, you know, these people who were doing so well buying $7,000 shoes, um, who are walking over the people who are lying in the street. And it reminds me all of the, the nomenclature, uh, the, the Russian elite, you know, that, that came out of communism, the, the pigs who changed the rules to all animals are equal, but more animal, some animals are more equal than others. Um, from the chat room, not necessarily a call yet, just, oh, okay. Well, Andrew, if you want to come on, let me know. Let's see if Andrew, um, Adrian's done yet. I'll give him a call. But um, anyway... So, one of the things that I've been trying to tell people for the longest time is that freedom is actually going to be freedom from the system. And I've even gotten some libertarians to start to agree with me. Because if this is another major aspect of all of this that came up during my argument with that guy, Aegis, who keeps insisting that everything's getting better... He honestly believed that the political system was going to yield some kind of benefit. And when I pointed out the effects of money in government, he just kind of pretended I didn't say it. And then he went back to saying, you know, oh, well, you know, lobbies are great because without them, people don't know what the problems are. And I'm like, lobbyists, they don't help people know what the problems are. They, they help you know what a corporation's problems are. I'd really like you to deregulate X so I can make more money. You know, and... How can you ever expect a system that is designed, that uses money, 
to ever become changeable in, in a way that's ever going to benefit people who don't have money. That doesn't, it just doesn't make any sense. Why would, you know, and that's why I was saying it's the nomenclature. It's, it's there is an elite group of people who have everything. Now, supposedly, that's why people are so terrified of communism. Supposedly, that's why people are so terrified of socialism. It's this inevitable thing that they say that always happens that a small amount of people are going to have most of the wealth. Well, we're there. What created that? You know, and, and free market capitalists are going to jump on me. They're going to say things like, oh, well, it's the regulations, it's the taxes. And as I po- pointed out in my blog, I'm just, I'm just not buying it. You know, as was revealed in outsourcing Greenville, it came down to the bottom line. You could pay somebody in Mexico $1.43 an hour. How can we compete with that? The only way can we compete, can, can compete with that is if we are willing to accept the same lifestyle that people in Mexico have who take $1.43 an hour. Now, some of that is in currency you know, devaluation. The American dollar is worth some more than the Mexican one. So uh, you do get translated a little bit better, but that's as also as we pointed out that that fellow from Mexico pointed out to me that now some of the companies are leaving Mexico and heading off to China or Bangladesh or some of the countries that are even more desperate than Mexico was. Now, th- when is this process ever going to reverse? I don't see it happening. What you're looking at now is that history is essentially, it's like the pendulum between labor and the people who own everything, you know, is, swip, is swinging back into the, into the position of people who own everything. It's, it's really simple. It's something that politicians don't want to talk about, but it's really simple. It amounts to this. Unions don't exist in third world countries. People who fight for the rights of the common worker do not exist in third world countries. And if they try to, in those countries that are far less civilized, you can be shocked. I remember in particular one of the documentaries I played, they gave a clip of, you know, we did what we were told to, that we should unionize and come together and protest. So they just went and helped, you know, went out and hired some thugs and just started shooting us until we went back to work. You know, that's, that, that's what they want for all of us people. And that's the reason why I'm very wary of any system or any group of people who try to tell me that outsourcing is okay. Because it's it's not just about, you know, it's not just, I mean, obviously those people need to work too. I don't, that's not the point. It's that what they really mean is that you should be in a position where you are enslaved to your employer. You know, and as things get worse, okay, you start to see this. This is another experience I had not long ago, actually. Remember I told you about how your employer can threaten you with poverty? Because that's what they're doing. They're not just threatening your job. They're threatening you with poverty. Okay. One of my former employers, I hired on to work at a 7-Eleven. I told them that I needed one weekend off a month. They were already giving me most of the weekend off. They wouldn't give me Sundays off unless I asked for them specifically. And I said, look, when I hired on, you know, this is something important. I volunteer for a charity. You know, I need this one day off. They agreed to it when I hired on. As we started to work, it became inconvenient for them to find somebody for a single Sunday a month. And I said, look, um, you know, you remember that we agreed that this is how it was going to be. And the lady, you know, who's got two kids, a family of her own, turns and looks at me and says, 
Yeah, but I also know that you need a job and that your family needs the money that you make at this job. Think about that for a minute. Was I free in that situation? You know, was I, is that freedom, my right to essentially be controlled by this person? It's just like Jacques said in Addendum. The moment you punch that time clock, you walk into a dictatorship. That's why I say true freedom is to get the hell out of this system. Well, Adrian, welcome to V-Radio. Hey, Neil, what's going on? Not too much. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Um, sorry about the delay. I was trying to figure out what was wrong with my headset, and it turns out the headset wasn't plugged in, so I got it solved now. Well, I've been doing radio for a long time, and I have had experience with the fact that headsets do tend to function better when they're plugged in. Yes, yes. So the, yes, the, the supporting data that I would have for you would state that it would probably be best <laughs> that you always plug in your headset. Yeah. Well, I, I just well the, to expand on the the uh, money issues uh, that you were talking about earlier. Um, I'm currently going to college full-time. Uh, I'm a veteran. I'm using my VA benefits to go to college for free. I'm in there for computer engineering. And just recently, uh, I got a letter stating that they've been sending me uh, extra money. Uh, it's been like in little small increments, like 20 to $30 uh, over the course of the entire year. And now all of a sudden I get this letter at the end of the fiscal year uh, telling me that I owe them like $2,000, $3,000. And who, where am I going to come up with this money? <laughs> I'm not laughing at you, obviously. No, you know what? That that happens in a, a lot of programs, actually. Um, like I have a friend, actually, who was on cash assistance. And uh, – Cash assistance, you got to go through all kinds of silly stuff in order to get it. But it's basically, it's like a bridge card that gives you real money. And they'll overpay you and then expect you to pay them back. Because after all, I mean, if you're on cash assistance, you know, you must be in a position where you can pay them back when they mess up. Well, yeah, the strange thing about it is that uh, – the, they they actually pay me to go to school. You know, I I served for five years, and you know, it's supposed to be kind of a, a reimbursement. Uh, as a reimbursement, they're paying me to go to school and you know try and pick up a profession or or whatever. But uh, so that's all I'm doing. I'm just focusing on school right now, and so I don't have a job. Uh, they pay me uh, monthly so I can live off of, you know, so I can have money to live off of, you know, and whatnot, and. Now they want me to pay them $2,000 back or whatever. And I'm like, where am I going to get this money? So now I have to jump all, uh, through all kind of uh, loops and write all these financial letters and tell them that, you know, that this is going to put me in, a, in financial hardship to have to pay this stuff back. I mean, uh, I'm just not able to. That's You know, it's interesting because I, I just don't see how – they expect you to do that, you know, and it's, I mean, and and what you're going through is bad enough as it is, okay? Imagine what that's like for a family that is destitute enough to actually qualify for cash assistance and then be told, oh, by the way, oops, yeah, we paid you more money than we were supposed to, and, and we would like that money back. You know, if you're in poverty to the point where you're getting cash assistance, you've definitely already spent the money, you know, I can tell you, even you know, from you know, knowing people who have had it, it doesn't give you very much. 
but you know, and if and the thing is, is that if you don't pay it back, then they'll terminate your you know your your benefits altogether. And some of these people are completely dependent on those benefits. You know, and yeah. it's like it's it, ridiculous. You screwed up, so now I can get penalized because you screwed up. Because that's really what it amounts to. I mean, if it was some, like, absurd number, maybe, like, you know, if you just, like, let's say, for example, one month, they give you $10,000, okay, well, then, yeah, obviously, you should probably take that $10,000 to find out what happened, and if you didn't, that's, you know, then you knowingly and willingly obviously cheated them, you know, because nobody's going to get $10,000 on a bridge card, but the notion that, you know, it, it was just a little bit here and a little bit there, just like you said. And then all of a sudden, they just want it back. Like, you're in a position to give it to them. You know, it's just, it, it's crazy. You know, and it's funny that you brought up, actually, uh, the notion that, you know, you were a veteran. Because one of the other things that occurred to me once was that it almost seemed to me as more and more of my friends were joining the military because of our economic problems here in Michigan. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, do they need a draft, or do they need just to tank the frickin' economy so much that there are no jobs? You know? That's pretty much happening right now, anyway. Uh, I live in a a pretty small city in in Southern California, and uh, and I'm noticing uh, a lot of people uh, moving. Everybody's moving out of my neighborhood, like, simultaneously. And, And... the places over the past three or four months, the apartments that have been uh, vacated are still empty. There's nobody living in these places, and and I don't see people uh, moving into these places anytime soon because the the required rent is too high, especially for the area that I'm around. And it's been steadily going up over the past, I'd say, four to five years. The uh, the required rent, like say for instance, my rent has gone up from around. Uh, eight fifty a month, I'd say, to about twelve hundred a month over the past five years. So, seeing how the the economy is going so bad and people are losing their jobs, and and especially some people work for the city and they're getting cut back too, because you know this is Los Angeles or whatever. Uh, a lot of people just aren't able to make ends meet. Even in full household, I'm I'm hearing people uh, not being able to keep up. It's it's ridiculous. Now, I need to actually take a moment um, to, to quote something. I, I also want to explain to the listeners, because originally I was going to have um, Jimmy McMillan, who's running for uh, governor in the state of New York, on the show. And um, he's really busy. We never got a chance to confirm the show. And I told him, okay, well, call me back, and we'll make sure that we can do it. You know, And he didn't get a chance to do that. He's, he's running on a shoestring budget. And, um, you know, obviously running as a, an independent, well, he's sort of an independent. He created his own party. And when he talked about how rent was too high, I immediately heard his slogan in my head. And it sounds something like this. Rent is too damn high. <laughs> he says, seriously, dude, just like in this total, you know, New Yorker, you know, black man voice, you know, you know just like rent is too damn high. You know, just old school, you know. And uh, yeah. he, he said this stuff, you know, and, and, and uh, he goes on to explain it. His platform is more than just saying that rent is too high. But, it, but, he, but what he's pointing out is that rent being high impacts all of these other aspects of the economy because it raises the prices of everything else. If, if your rent is too high on your business, you have to charge more for your products, you know, 
or you can't afford the overhead of operating your business in the first place. You know, you got to look this guy up, Adrian. He's a total trip. You know, because he he looks like a black Hulk Hogan. He's got like this <laughs> white hair. You know that that's but it's but it's like the the way it's all on him and the way he wears the sunglasses. You know, he's really funny. Um, I guess he's had some questionable beliefs in the past about 9/11. So, but you know, still, you know, he's he's a he went on the government uh, the governor governor debate, and uh, he just kept repeating rent is too damn high over and over again and. The rest of the people debating were really boring, but he kind of stole the show, and now he's getting on the CNN and stuff like that. And I'm still hoping to get him on my show. But it's funny that what you pointed out is that the rent is, in fact, too damn high. <laughs> it's too high for – well, what I've noticed – I looked this up some time ago. I'm sure the people in the, the chat room can correct me if I'm wrong. But um, the cost of living – uh, yeah, the cost of living in the United States has gone up at least 70% in the last 20 years. But the uh, the earned wages for the middle class have only gone up like 10%. There, there's a huge disparity. Now, I agree. And it's like, how do they expect that system to function? How, where is that money going to come from? And yeah, yes. It, the middle class is rapidly disappearing. Yep. And, and, you know, why is that? Okay. When you think about it, who benefits the most from the middle class going away? Okay. Uh, the rich do. Well, I mean, obviously. Once everybody, once, once the, the lower class or the poor are totally 100% dependent on the, the upper class or the rich, uh, the lower class loses all their power, basically. They they they're at the mercy of of the upper class. Um, yeah, and that's and the funny thing is is that it, it benefits them because the middle class. When you think about it, what where does the middle class represent? Skilled laborers. Why are they vanishing? Because skilled labor is being automated, or it's being outsourced to countries where people who are desperate live, and are therefore content to do what a skilled laborer was doing in this country for the prices that, you know, a, a, well, a fraction. For a fraction, yeah, for yeah, a fraction, fraction of the cost. You know, how can we ever compete with that? We don't need to complicate this shit any more than this. It all comes down to wages. And the only regulation, because they keep saying deregulate, 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 that's going to fix everything. The only regulation that would fix this is not something we want to fix, and that is minimum wage. Okay. I mean, mind you, Minimum wage has not really been a very big, effective tool anyway because the Federal Reserve just prints more money and devalues the currency anyway. But still, it's, uh, it's basically ridiculous to think that we're ever going to be able to sustain this system. It's not even complicated, folks. It's as simple as this. No jobs means no money. Period. It's that simple. And you can't create more, you know, unless you're willing to live and demand as much from a company as a robot would. Well, just to, to put, kind of put it in perspective, back in 1996 when I got my very first job, I was working at my church, and I was making minimum wage, which was $8.25 an hour. Uh, today, minimum wage is $8.50 an hour. It hasn't gone up anything more than $0.25. Cents. Yep. 
But like I said, my rent has gone over the last five years, not the last 15 years. It's gone up in the last five years, almost $300. (laughs) An extra 25 cents an hour does not cover that. No, because, in fact, rent is too damn high. (laughs) (laughs) Way too damn high. Uh, But you're talking about your buddy running for for, uh, public office. I was thinking about running for public office in my city, and I I was going through – uh, the paperwork trying to see, you know, what was required. And it's either you have to put down a certain amount of money to run or you have to have a certain amount of signatures to run, like 10,000 signatures or something out of the district that you want to run in. Well, it turns out that if I don't get something like 10,000 signatures somewhere around there, that I have to pay like $2,000 to actually run for office here. So if you want to if you're just a normal person that just wants to run and, you know, try and help out uh, the people around you, uh, you have to put yourself in debt or save up like you're going to save to buy a car in order to do so. Now, um, somebody's asking me a question in the chat. Would I be looking for the V Radio about Sheeple Post? No, the subject of Sheeple is a great show, but the one you're looking for is the very last show I just had. Let me go ahead and tell everybody who missed it, because I know that um, a lot of people missed my last show with Jacques and Roxanne. It was the best show I have ever had with Jacques and Roxanne, and largely because we did a different method. We used Skype instead of the phone. Jacques was able to understand clearly all of the questions. We covered a lot of things. We covered debunking the BS notion that we're the New World Order. We covered the debunking that... that idiot who basically plagiarized all the Venus Project's ideas. Um, We covered the silly theory that Jock's working for the UN, um, and it was a great show. Yeah, it was so ridiculous. I don't know if you've seen that video that that guy's parroting around saying that, look, we have proof, irrevocable proof that Jock works with the UN. You know, and no, I haven't seen that. Oh my God, dude! Some dude, you know, he was in TS3 and he asked Roxanne a series of loaded questions, fully intent on trying to make it look like she was working with the United Nations. I will cover it all in my last radio show. You can find it in the archives if you go to vradio.org, v-radio.org. Go to the archives. It's the very on the very last page of the archives. It was a very good show. We covered so many things, and unfortunately, um, because Thunder had just had a show uh, with them on it, I don't. I think people didn't come uh, uh, listen to that one, which is too bad because it really is. Um, it really was the best show I've ever had with Jock and Roxanne, hands down. So anyway, um, Eric, are you ready to talk with us? Still there? I'm here. I'm here. Just unmuted. Well, you were talking something a little bit about renters um, back on the topic. Yeah, no, I'm just saying, you know, of course they've set it up, you know, to, if if you're not going to be a slave to the mortgage, then what? You think you're going to get by and and, and be smart and wise and and be a renter? I mean, I used to read, read some articles probably two, three years back where they were saying, you know, you're better off renting, you know, when the mortgage started crashing. Even the mainstream media was doing stories saying uh, how you can rent a house for, you know, a fraction of the price of, of what you would be paying in your, your high-priced mortgage and a better house at that. But I guess they've, they've uh, kind of nixed, nixed 
that and and cut that out. No, they got to keep up the the perception that the economy's recovering and everything's fine. Yeah, and you're not going to get by. What you think you're smart? What you think you're going to be smart and get by in the system? No way. Oh, that's definitely true. Actually, Adrian, before I forget something, you were talking about running for public office, um, and I've told a lot of people this. I know that a lot of people in the Zeitgeist movement hate the political system, and so do I. But um, my advice to you is actually, if you talk to the local Green Party, in many cases they already have they already have ballot access. They've already done what they need to do on a statewide ballot. And in many cases, they'll be happy just to have you. And if you look at the Green Party's, I actually did a radio show about this. If you look at the Green Party's platform, it's the closest thing to the Venus Project you're going to get. And I also tell people that, you know, don't not vote, okay? Not voting is exactly what the elite want. It is certainly in their interest that you do that. If, if you don't want to investigate politicians, at least just go and click green on everything, Green, 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 because they are the closest. Now, the reason why this is important is that the more people who show support for those ideals, the more our own ideals start to look appealing, because we are very close to the Green Party in a lot of ways. So just something to think about, and we'll get back to the topic here about renting. Renting is exactly right, what, you know, yeah, no problem. Um, and if you have any questions about that or running for office or any of that, I'll give you, I'll be more than happy to help you. I went through all of that, too. Um, you got to research your district. We'll get into all of that. Um, okay. So anyway, uh, to, to comment on what Eric said, yes, I agree with you. Um, I, for example, was renting rooms to boarders to get by, and you know, it, they didn't do anything to stop me per se. But when the economy starts to tank, people can't even afford the uh, um, people can't even afford the the rent that I was offering. I mean, I give people a room, all utilities, and most of your food for $300 a month, and they can't even afford that. You know, and, and that basically, at that point, you're thinking to yourself, you know, man, you know, what the hell is happening to the economy? You know, and there are other added benefits, like the fact that they don't have to clean the house. That's my job. And the fact that if for some reason something happens and they can't make the rent you know, on time, I'm not going to throw them out in the street. You know, but even then, it kind of comes down to it now, is that as was pointed out in the article about young adults becoming the homeless, is that we're kind of in a situation where you get out of school and you have to find a place to live and you cannot make enough money to live on your own so you end up back with your parents or you end up splitting rent with somebody somewhere else. And that's becoming the norm. And I don't really see uh, what, how that's going to change. There's no amount of laws that are going to get passed that are ever going to really bring jobs back to this country, other than stuff that is totally fascist in nature. You know, what were you going to say, Adrian? Yeah. I was going to say, uh, just on that subject, uh, I have a friend uh, that got married when she was 23 or 24, and she's been living with her mother for at least six or seven years, her and her husband and her two kids, because they started a family. But her husband wasn't able to find a job. She wasn't able to find a job. And so they were living with their with their with with her mother uh, uh, while uh, – while they're raising two kids on a teacher salary, her mother was a teacher, and teacher salaries, I'm sure everybody knows, are are really really bad. 
And, well, I, you know, I, I see that the, the squeezing is just going to keep happening. You know, one of the reasons why people used to have really large families in the old days was because if something happened, it was a larger group of people who could absorb that. You know, in, for example, in Celtic Ireland, people used to live in clans, also in Scotland. Okay, and if something happened to you, you had not just maybe mom and pop to help you. You had all of your cousins, all of your uncles, all of your, you know, because everybody, first of all, they had large families, and second of all, those families, you know, had a lot of kids, and second of all, those families all lived together, and, you know, like, at least in the various, you know, the same area, and so you'd have this huge community to fall back on. This is another one of the reasons why I see the, the family unit disintegrating being to the benefit of the elite in the same way that the middle class banishing is to the benefit of the elite because it makes you more and more dependent on your job and your ability to get a job. That's what people think now is the extent of their survival. There was a time when people did focus holistically on the idea that I need to be self-sufficient. I'm going to get myself a piece of land, I'm going to plant some crops, I'm going to have some you know, animals, you know, whatever, and, and now that time seems to have just vanished. You know, uh, people don't really, uh, they don't know the difference. You know, they, they don't realize that the more dependent they become on the money system, the easier it is for the elite to control them. Now, if you don't have a job, you're dead. <laughs> but, you know, this is the free market system. There, there's no, If I have a job, I can buy all the, all the goods and services I want. I'm, nobody's controlling me. Right, until they threaten your ability to buy anything. You know, that's, that's why I was saying I brought up that, that tyrannical ex-boss of mine, you know, because he did have the power to essentially sentence my family to poverty. And the, and the more unemployment goes up, the more ballsy employers get. That's how I got into that situation with my, oh, yeah, my other ex-boss was, yeah, I know that I agreed to give you that one Sunday a month that you asked for, but I also know you need a job, and I know that your family needs money. <laughs> like, like I said, <laughs> and she just says this, you know, once if, again. If, if you don't want to come in on Sunday, I'm sure I can find somebody else that will take your job and will be happy to come in on Sundays. Right. Because that's, you know, that's not controlling you at all. Now, um, Eric, do you want to share those points about China you were making? Um, yeah, it's funny because you're, you're saying this trend in, in that's happening in, like, I don't know if it's just the U.S. or Sorry, honey. Sorry about the kid. Um, or Canada, but I know it's happening in Australia as well, um, where people of older ages are going back to the family. Um, in China, it's like the opposite. It's, it's, hold on. I'll come back. No problem. <laughs> Been there, done that, got the T-shirt. Um, we'll go back to uh, the Chinese connection in a moment. Um, but yeah, the vanishing middle class is good for the because good for the elite, and uh, small businesses failing is good for the elite because it allows them to set the standards for everything. When Walmart puts smaller businesses out of work, or basically, not only does it it does two things. It's the same thing that happens in these small countries when they send their uh you know the the subsidized corn for example into these smaller countries the subsidized vegetables into these smaller countries because most third world countries are utterly dependent on agriculture um so then you you come in you put all of the farmers out of work as soon as they're out of work and they lose their land you buy it 
for United Fruit or whatever other company. Um, and then the people who want to set up factories in those third world countries have an endless army of slaves, basically people who are willing to work for only what it requires them to live and no more. For pennies on the dollar. Right, for pennies on the dollar. It's a totally engineered system. You know, go in, wreck the economy, steal the land, and then after the economy is gone and after their land is gone, now you have a country full of people who are so desperate to feed their children and to feed their families that they will take any scrap you throw to them from the table. And that's why I said earlier, this all sounds exactly like what they claim you know, happened in communist Russia, the same thing that happened, you know, in, in South Korea, or now it's North Korea, Kim Jong-il and his brand of communism, quote-unquote, where he and his the inner circle live high on the hog and the majority of his people don't even have electricity. Okay? Now, we think of that, now, we point at that, and we think it's evil. How far away are we from that now? I think that uh, that we just need to clarify that you know the elite that we're talking about isn't some some group of people that are that are evil and they're sitting and conniving trying to figure out how to enslave humanity. They're they're just out for profit, and that's our, our system is is 100% profit driven, especially when you're involved in in the market system and in, in, in capitalism. It's just it's profit driven. That's the only thing on these people's minds. And the more profit that they're enabled to that they're able to uh, cure while they're, you know, doing their dealings with whoever else they're dealing with, uh, the more money they make. And I don't know. It's just it's just a, a self defeating system. Well, remember like the economic hitman said in Zeitgeist Addendum. You know, this doesn't have to be a conspiracy theory. These people don't have to get together. It's just an understanding that it's us and them. You know, like if you've seen Michael Moore's film, he, like, circulates, you know, like basically gets some of the memos that were circulated by the, you know, by the plutocracy, because that's what it is, about the dead peasant program. Are you familiar with that? you know what I'm talking about? No, doesn't, doesn't pe dead peasant program? No, I haven't yeah, heard that. Yeah, you, you need to look that up or, or watch Capitalism, a Love Story because it's, it's so chilling. But basically, this is the dead peasant uh, program, and that's what it's actually called in these memos that uh, these corporations actually uh, circulate, is they will take out, let's say you work at Walmart, okay? They will take out a life insurance policy on you. And if you die... I remember that now. Okay, yeah. If you die, they get the money. And they actually would speculate and essentially gamble trying to determine who was most likely to die. And then, like, some of the memos that were circulated were from executives who were disappointed with the fact that not enough people had died. Yeah, they were taking out life insurance policies on their employers without telling the employees. Oh, no, it, or they take on their employees without telling the employees. Yes, sorry about that. Right, no, it's, it's fine. I'll, I'll forgive you this time, but because I'm part of the the evil sun cult, I, I will have to punish you later for. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> yeah, that's another thing, folks, uh, that you need to listen to that that last Venus Project uh, interview because we went over the fact the the, uh, the the morning star theory, you know, that that we they, we worship the morning star, and I and I brought up the quote 
from the Bible where Jesus says that he is the morning star. Uh, <laughs> it's in there, too. It, it's it's like the last line in Revelation. And he says, I'm the descendant of David and the bright morning star. Um, I used that one in Facebook and, and shut up some people, that's for sure. Because it's, we're, remember, we're the, the evil Luciferian satanic cult. Um, we, we also focused a lot on, uh, as Jacques pointed out, that we wanted to actually get beyond the silliness of expecting some god or or uh, a benevolent entity to make heaven for us when we could just make heaven ourselves. So the proper or, or waiting. I see so many people uh, going to church and, and praying uh, for God to help them fix their problems. Uh, I think that's just kind of a cop-out. I mean, we're just not taking responsibility for the world we live in, basically. That, that's basically what religion is doing to us. Mhm. And that's you know that's basically what happened to my mother for a while. She got you get you get into such poverty, and it, it's funny how this works because uh, these people credit God with with everything. Um, you know, if, if you're doing well, it's because God gave it to you. I had to deal with the same stupid argument with my ex-wife because now she's trying to indoctrinate our children, and my daughter made a comment. Um, uh, my daughter made a comment saying, my imagination comes from Jesus. And I said to her, no, sweetie, your imagination comes from your mind. And my ex-wife overheard me saying that, and she totally flipped out. And I had to tell her, I'm like, do you really want our daughter to believe that her, you know, that, that the basic brain function she has comes directly from Jesus? And she's like, well, yes, of course, everything comes from Jesus. And I was like, oh, okay. So I guess Jesus is kind of selective in his, you know, in his imbuing of gifts. And she's like, what the hell do you mean? And I said, well, let's say, for example, there was a science fair. And, you know, the, the kid who won, you know, was Christian. And, and he said, thank you, Jesus, for, for helping me win the science fair with my geothermal power plant project. I owe it all to Jesus. You know, that's very inspiring until you ask the question, why is it that Jesus didn't think anybody else deserved to win the science fair? <laughs> it, it, it ranks right up there with, Daddy, why does Santa Claus hate poor kids? <laughs> you know. Or, or why didn't Jesus uh, get some uh, give somebody this information about geothermal power plants 50 years ago or 60 years ago? Mm-hmm. Why is it just now? Right. That's. And it, it, it's an interesting point because, you know, and I don't want to get too off on the tangent, but when it comes to the economy, people turn to religion in droves in the hopes that if they pray enough, their situation will get better. And then you end up kind of programming yourself that anytime something good happens, it's providence. And anytime something bad happens, it's, you know, some evil entity messing with your life. Well, I've lived in my share of poor neighborhoods growing up, and I, what I noticed um, uh, just recently is that when you drive around in poor neighborhoods, there's a church on every other corner, every other corner. You go to like places like Beverly Hills or you know uh, Santa Monica, you know you don't see that. You don't see a liquor store on every corner. You don't see a church on every corner. But in poor neighborhoods where uh, the poverty level is high and people are living paycheck to paycheck, there's churches everywhere and liquor stores everywhere. That's an interesting point. Um, 
Now, we got a couple of callers on the switchboard. I don't know if any of them want to come on, but we're going to ask. Um, first, I'm going to start with the caller here from the 412 area code. Caller from the 412 area code, you're on the air. Sounds like there's a monster at the It's okay, Caller from the 412 area code, I'm talking to you. You're on the air. I don't even do anything. I don't even. What the fuck was that? Oh, you want food, too? Okay. All right. Yeah, we're going. Hey. We're cursing in the background and everything. Yep. All right. We got another one. Caller from. Zero 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 one two three four five six. You're on the air. <laughs> yeah, I think that's me, right? Uh, yep, that's you. All right. Um, uh, so it's uh, okay. I remember watching a video uh where someone okay the, the man speaking was advocating going from a money-based economy to a resource-based economy. Is this the the Venus Project? Uh, Well, yeah, I'm a spokesman for the Venus Project. What can I do for you? (laughs) Welcome to V-Radio. No, I I mean, uh, I'm just wondering if this is is the same. Um, Well, the one thing that uh, I, I did, I was a little bit disappointed for was that I I saw that he has videos uh, on, like, Larry King from, like, back in the, I want to say it was, like, the 70s. And I just wondered, you know, in, like, 30 or 40 years, how much progress has been made with with these ideas. So you were disappointed uh, I, that not a lot of progress has been made? Right. Yeah, that, that kind of made me lose faith in in the movement, I don't because I mean I I thought that this was you know a, a recent uh, movement that was just springing up and and I thought well you know this is great everything he talks about is great but then when I saw that he was talking about this from back in the 70s and I don't it, it, I don't know that discouraged me that uh, I mean has it just seems to me that not a lot has not a lot of progress has been made in that direction, or or am I wrong? All right. No, that's fine. Let let me comment on that. Um, Remember, first of all, the the situation that Jacques was in at the time, okay? When you saw Jacques on Larry King, that was not Larry King Live, the CNN show. That was a local television program that Larry King worked for, okay? That was like the equivalent of going on your local station, which was much less of a big deal back then because there was no universal stations that people watched. You watched whatever was in range of your television. Okay, this is a very different world. Yep, no cable TV. Right. The Internet changed everything. Okay, Peter Joseph, having a following from the first Zeitgeist film, gave him a sounding board essentially to introduce this concept to a great deal many more people. If you think not a lot is getting accomplished, I would go back and listen to the show, the last show that I just had, where Jacques and Roxanne gave a lot of the details um, of the kind of people that were listening to them about their idea. Okay, 
what you have to remember is that the reason it's taken so long is because a lot of things have changed in this world because of the Internet. Okay? The Internet has allowed us to reach people you know, who we never could have reached. I have friends all over the world that I would have never met back during the 70s. There, there's no way, for example, I mean, even people within the United States. I probably never would have met Adrian if it weren't for the Internet. I certainly wouldn't have met Eric, the other guy on the call who's currently dealing with his child, because he lives in China. You know, how would I have met him without the Internet? I wouldn't have. Okay, so now the reason that this is relevant is that Jacques has been trying to get this idea out there for many years. But the means by which to spread information, that's why this is what we call the information age. The means by which to spread this information did not exist. Zeitgeist Addendum as a feature film would not have been possible during the 70s. The only reason it's even possible now is because Peter could distribute it on the Internet. Okay? The Internet has changed so many things that it used to be very easy for the elite, so to speak, to, to squelch. Okay? Um, and when I say the elite, you know, once again, you know, disclaimer, it, it's not about a conspiracy theory. We do know that there are rich people who understand that in order to stay rich, the poor need to stay poor. So, and, and they kind of work together to some extent. That's what a cartel is. I always use the example of the oil companies. You know, how, remember the, the gas shortage, quote-unquote, when they're reporting record profits, yet they're charging us this ridiculous amount of money at the pump, but they're only com- competing by maybe two or three cents. That doesn't happen by accident. <laughs> you know, the oil companies got together and said, hey, our commodity is not just something people want. It's something people actually need. The entire economy is totally based on us. Why don't we all just get together and raise the price of our commodity to the point where, you know, let's test it out. Let's see just how much we can really make people pay for gasoline. And that's what they did. Now, to get back to your point, though, that, caller, does that, does that make sense to you? Do you understand why it took so long for us to get to this point where it's easier for somebody like Jock to get his ideas out there? Yes, I I understand what you're saying. Uh, what I thought that that was uh, I didn't realize that was only a local station, so that's different. So, uh, yeah. you know, I thought that he was discussing these ideas on national TV for 40 years, and in 40 years were, you know, pretty much a square one. I, I that discouraged me. But no, that's it's okay. different if it was. But yeah, it, local. it is. It was just the local TV station in Florida. Okay, right. And, yeah, I understand what you're saying about the Internet changing uh, changing the, uh, for grassroots movements. Um, but I, well, think about I, just like how much having a website about something changes it. Having a website, you know. Can you even remember? I mean, it's like think about how different things were, okay. In, in, in those days, the only way anybody would have ever heard about the Venus Project is if they happened to be lucky enough to find Jock's book or maybe see those Larry King things in local news. It never would have gotten on national news unless it benefited the people who owned the news. I apologize for interrupting you, but I just wanted you to let that really sink in. You know, there was a time when there was no Internet where you couldn't just say, yeah, check out thevenusproject.com. You can go to your computer that's in everybody's house and access this information without me having to give you a book. Those were the days when in order to spread any information, you had to hand it out generally through letters, you know, physically hand somebody, you know, a hard copy of something, a written copy. 
a very different world. I'm mean, sorry. Go ahead with what you were saying. Uh, no, I, I mean, I, I think I'm pretty much done. I, I mean, I agree with so many of the ideas being discussed. Uh, and uh, I think it is, I think it would be great uh, if people could could actually, if, if if everybody could work at what they love doing as opposed to just what pays the bills. You know, that just seems, that seems like heaven on earth to me. No, I understand. Trust me. That's, um, uh, and he did tell Jacques that he thought it was a good idea. But good luck getting him on CNN. <laughs> Yeah, that's 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 basically the issue now. So. Well, but anyway, and especially not on Larry King, right? He's he's gone now. <laughs> well, I mean, it's possible we'd have to bother the hell out of him, but I doubt it. You know, major networks would have to. This is another reason why, when these guys claim these New World Order conspiracies, I laugh at them, because if we were really bankrolled by the Rothschilds or whatever other random conspiracy theory they came up with, why the we hell did. are we? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Adrian? No, that wasn't me. Yeah, that wasn't me. I was, yeah, I was saying, I was just saying we'd be all over everything, all over TV, all over the front page of MSN.com. We'd be on the front page of everything if we were bankrolled by these people. Like, like WikiLeaks. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I still think WikiLeaks is well-intentioned, but yeah. Now, Eric, are you finally back enough to explain your point about China and the way the culture was changing? Yeah, I was saying, you know, you were talking about how in the old world, or whatever you want to call it, um, you know, people had big families and they lived together more. And that's true, like, like trans, transculturally. I mean, you just go back um, a few generations and our families, we were much closely knit, whether you lived in the same house or not. It was, you know, we didn't have this spreading out of families like we, we saw over the past oh, let's say 50 years in, in North America. And in China, up until recently, it was, you know, it was it was the old way. You know, you got married, and basically your, your mom and dad um, of, of, the, of the, the husband would basically give you a, a new floor of the house to bring your wife back to. And you had your cousin and aunts, and you're all living in more of a <clears throat> communal-type um, situation. And what happened in North America is, I guess it was pretty much after World War II, we, we developed this culture of, oh, you know, you're a loser. You live in your mom, you know, you live in your mom's house or something. He's such a loser, mm-hmm. you know. And now it's funny because we're going back that way. But now in China, people are, you know, young families are trying to break away from living with the with the grandparents, the the in-laws and whatnot. Because you know everything's really good right here in China now. Don't forget. Yeah, you know, the, the, the bubbles. The bubbles only exist everywhere else. You know, if you watch the news on 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 the the CCTV, what they call it here, China Central Television, you know, the only bad things that happen in China are are natural disasters. You know, all the bubbles and the economic problems exist outside, and China is just it's it's great. They're the winners. I mean, that's what they're they're selling to people here. So, I mean, they're just, I mean, the, the past year alone in Shanghai, I can't even tell you the numbers of, of Porsches and, and Ferraris and and just these exotic cars I see springing up everywhere. It's, it's, everything's great here in China, though. Now, it's like the only place. 
Yeah, it's funny that you say that because um, somebody who heard about my situation had suggested to me that I should become a language instructor in China. And, yeah. And I guess they take care of you. The problem is, is that I, I'm not going to leave my kids here. <laughs> yeah, I know. That, that's another thing, you know. It's it's I, I, how many people? I can't even tell you how many people I know between, the, let's say, the UK and and the North America. And of course, it's usually guys because guys are usually more into this transition. It's just the nature of being a male, I guess. But you know, Nia, I just there's so many people that are in your same exact situation where they, you know, they they've thrown away their job. They're really trying to change something. They've lost their family in the process, and they're tied down with some sort of, you know, the legalities of child support, and all just also just wanting to to be close to the their kids which is very commendable but my only my only advice to that is that, you know in the long run what do you want to show your kids that you're um you know you you're getting a, more than just getting by in this society i mean do you, it, it's a tricky situation and i i i don't know what what kind of advice to give to that but it's 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 very terrible to see how many people are are of this new consciousness, whatever you want to call it, and they're trapped in this divorce child um, support system. It's it's terrible. I don't know. No, I understand, and it's it's interesting that you you point that out. Is that some of the detractors, particularly, you see them like on the the blogs that are anti zeitgeist They they go after anything you know they can go after. They don't. And they, they don't understand. It's always obvious because these are the people, the ones that uh, uh, that tell you that everything is okay, and pride themselves on doing better than you. You know, uh, it started off with you know you're a loser VTV because you work at McDonald's. They had you know this is the other funny thing about conspiracy science is they claim they hate conspiracy theories and then they make up all these conspiracy theories about you. <laughs> um, you know. And I'm like, I don't work at McDonald's. And the guy was like, yes, you do. You're a liar. You work at McDonald's. I'm like, no, I don't. He's like, oh, it was Burger King. You work at Burger King. I'm like, no, I don't. He's like, yes, you do. You're a liar. And then eventually he finally pulled his head out of his butt long enough to realize that my wife at the time was working at Burger King. But anyway... You know, it, it it went down from, well, you're working at Burger King, so therefore you're bad. You're working at McDonald's, so therefore you're bad. Then it's, you don't have a job, so therefore you're bad. You know, it's, you just can't win with these people. And you know, it's always interesting because you, you, you can tell that a lot of these cases, a lot of cases with these people, they don't know what it's like to have ever wanted for anything. And so, you know, it, it doesn't occur to them that, you know, people could be in that position. And as I said earlier in the broadcast, I don't think they want to admit it to themselves that, um, you know, that people um, can be there. They don't want to even think about it. They don't want to even consider it. And also they don't want to consider it because then they might have to take responsibility for the fact that they are, as pointed out in that Russia Today video, walking past homeless people who are lying on the ground and going to go buy seven thousand dollars shoes. You know, mm -hmm. I could live off of seven thousand dollars for seven months easily. <laughs> you know, have everything paid for. Yeah. And they're wearing that on their feet. 
you know. Well, the, the, the loser, the whole loser label is another very, very American kind of cultural trait, by the way, I noticed too. I mean, people don't use that sort of term for for others so much in if you're a loser because you do this or that. It's, it's, it's very status-orientated and very, very American, I've noticed. You're saying they don't do that in China? No, it, it's changing, of course, because they're adopting the hyper-materialism. But no, they don't call people losers just, you know, for certain um, situations that, that, you know, behaviors and, and whatnot that people follow. You know, this, this loser kind of, they'll say, oh, you know, just to have more money, but they don't, this, this loser label, it's, it's very, it's thrown around very loosely in America, you know, like, oh, you're a loser because you work there, you're a loser because you don't have a college degree or these sorts of things. It's you know, funny. in China, they'll say, oh, he's uneducated, oh, he does, okay, he doesn't have a, a degree, but they, they don't go around calling people like losers, and they don't do it in Europe as much either. Mm-hmm. No, it, 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 it is what it is. It's not this, you know, oh, you're a loser, this loser, and that loser. You know what I'm saying? No, I do. And I think that that's actually part of the capitalist propaganda that uh-huh. was, that was done during the Cold War. You know, people, they, they endlessly show the videos. This is something that was brought up in the Cywar film, was that we endlessly talk about the, the propaganda that was used in communist and national socialist countries you know, meaning obviously czarist, they're not czarist, um, you know, Soviet Russia, uh, I guess to some degree communist China, and uh, obviously, uh, you know, Nazi Germany, they, they would always show us the propaganda films, but they also didn't talk about the fact that we had our whole, we had our own propaganda going on here in the United States, you know, that to tell us that capitalism was great. And when you think about it, the whole idea to tell somebody that they are not a good person um, if they don't contribute enough, you know, essentially, you know, if they're not plugged into the system as much as somebody else, you know, that's when you think about it, it's the ultimate propaganda. It's saying, hey, you're not being enough of a capitalist. You're a loser, you know, because you don't have this or that. Fashion is a perfect example of this. We brought this up during the homeschooling episode was the notion that your self-worth is entirely based on the amount of money you spend on your clothing. And that, like, the little things like, you know, the, the Foot Locker shoes. Like, if you know, Foot Locker, they're always more expensive than Foot Locker. So if you want your Air Jordans to be a symbol of prestige, Air Jordans meaning tennis shoes or actually basketball shoes, I guess, you know, they have to have the Foot Locker tag still attached to them because otherwise it reveals that your mother actually bought them at Kmart. <laughs> I remember that. I remember that with the little the little chain attached with the little Foot Locker tag, and I remember that from high school. Oh my God! I'm glad somebody else remembered that. Early '90s or what? I don't remember that. Yep, the early '90s. Mind you, I grew up in the freaking ghetto, so I mean, for most of my life, I also experienced the the rich snobby areas. So I got to deal with the the, the crap of both areas because my dad was well to do and my mother was not, and I remember. The, the pump-up shoes. Do you remember those, Adrian? You know, you, you yep. In the, the tongue, you press the little ball or the right. basketball-shaped thing in the front, and you pump up the shoes, and it it makes the shoe uh, fit a little bit tighter. Yeah, when and you they, play basketball. And they costed a hundred and twenty frickin' dollars. And Ooh. in my area, you know, gangbangers they may not be able to afford a pump shoe, but they can certainly afford a thirty-eight or a forty-five because they're drug dealers. 
and they'll just shoot you for your shoes. This is how crazy the the fashion yeah. thing gets. Yeah, that happened a couple times around my neighborhood too. Yep. Or I used to own a black leather trench coat that I purchased, you know, by, if, with my dishwashing job as a kid. You know, I was like 15, and I couldn't wear it out of the house because I had heard, you know, I uh, somebody not more than five blocks away from me got shot for owning a similar coat and not being willing to give it to somebody. You know, that that's the notion that you know, you know, it, it's funny because. You know, once again, when you study Century of Self, you learn that Edward Bernays helped them engineer through propaganda that our ability to buy stuff is our freedom. You know, so essentially, you, you basically look at somebody who has pump shoes and you shoot them for your freedom. <laughs> That's basically what it translates into. You know, um, so it, it is pretty sad, you know, that... that these systems of control exist, and, and people don't see it right there under their nose. Well, a lot of it goes back or comes back to um, our upbringing. Uh, we're not uh, we're not taught to be critical thinkers. We're, we're taught to be fed information, whether it be from a newspaper or the news or or. Uh, people around us that get their information from newspapers or the news or something like that. It, it, we're not taught to formulate our own opinions through critical thinking. We're taught to observe what's coming off the, the, the TV and how other people are behaving and mimic that to fit in. Because we're, we're all, I think it evolved within us to, uh, to be social creatures to to be very social with people around us, so we could uh, so we could form these uh, these large uh, these large uh, groupings of people, you know, so we could congregate in large areas in cities and whatnot. You get what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I do. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, um, we're down to the last five minutes of the broadcast. I want to thank you both for coming on. Um, Another advent of technology is that this conversation could have never taken place. Like, what state are you located in, Adrian? Uh, Los Angeles, California. So you're on the other side of the country, and then we've got another guy in here from China. You know, um, I don't know where, the, where where our callers came from, but uh, but still, you know, it's this is the world that we live in now, and the world that we lived in before that allowed capitalism to function is very quickly just bleeding away. Yeah, that's and, a, can I make a comment on that? Yeah, go ahead. Because it was kind of related to the to the uh, caller, the, the last caller, was his, his question of why it has, you know, why these ideas haven't, you know, they've been around for some decades, maybe even a century if you if you look back. Um, if, if anybody's familiar with a, it's, I guess it's a theory, it's called the Kardashev scale, which basically takes societies into, it looks at a galactic scale, and it's type 1, type 2, type 3, and it's based on a society's ability to harness energy. So a type 1 society would be, in fact, much like what we call a resource-based economy, and it would entail us being able to harness, in an ecologically balanced way, the, the, all the energy that's on our Earth. 
from the sun, from the wind, from from geothermal, what, whatever it be. Um, and what's interesting, the first aspect to trans right now we're in a, a type zero. To transition into a type one, many the theory says that you need that that you need global communication as a, a, an element to transition, which we now have with the internet. Right. How do you spell it? It's a K A R. It's a Russian name. Anybody know? Do you know what I'm talking about, Neil? I remember hearing about it um, because uh, that one Japanese guy, uh, gray hair. You see him on a lot of green uh-huh. TV shows and stuff. He talks about that actually. Yeah, it's it's K A R D A S H E V. But yeah, it's pretty interesting, and it's 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 pretty much people are saying scientists and and social engineers are saying that we are on the verge of transitioning to a, a stage one, and the scale even says that it's probably the most difficult, the most uh, dangerous to make. Yeah, I mean we could blow ourselves up. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, he was saying that that's the reason. That's probably the reason why uh, we haven't detected. Uh, life near us, anywhere near us out in the universe is because uh, a lot of civilizations don't make it from this transition from type exactly. 0 to type 1. Yep. Now, what yep. were you trying to say before he brought that up, Adrian? No clue whatsoever. <laughs> no, that's fine. But no, I understand what you mean about those transitions because they are really dangerous. And I, and I, that's kind of what I see now is that we're, we're stepping into an interesting uncharted territory. As uh, Ben Stewart from Chimatica and Esoteric Agenda, when I interviewed him, you know, about his Hanged Man project, he said that people are, are better to, basically they're more willing to stay here with the status quo system that we have because to move out of it would move them into uncharted territory. And they know that they're doing at least okay as things are now. They know the rules of the game. They're mm-hmm. scared to learn new rules. Mm-hmm. So, the the problem with that is the rules of the game aren't uh, aren't in their favor. Yep, and the they don't feel the game are heavily weighed against them. Yeah. Just as Douglas Millett, like when he did his uh, presentation to the humanists, um, you know, one of the ladies there was a socialist, and she pointed out that you know we're all told that you know it's okay because everybody has a chance to be rich. All the people who are rich, well, they work really hard, and if you oh. work really hard, you can be rich too. And they don't tell you that the statistics are not in your favor. You might as well play the lottery because you're just as likely to win as you are to become independently wealthy. Well, they only show uh, the great success stories. Like, uh, um, who's the the director that has all these movies that coming out recently? Why did I get married? Things like that. Uh, well, he hold on, hold on a li- second, Adrian. We're okay. down to like the last ninety seconds. Um, just want to let all the live listeners know that this conversation will be left on the archive. Thank you for tuning in. Please visit vradio.org. And now, continue with what you're saying, Adrian. Oh, uh, what I was saying, uh, this guy, he used to live in his car, and now he's this, you know, uh, famous director. You know, he has all these contracts for making movies uh, and doing plays, things like that. So he, he went from basically rags to riches. But what people don't realize is that for every one of these success stories, there's a thousand or more stories that never got to the success point. They just stayed in the rags area. They never got to the riches. They just stayed in the rags. 
and that's what people are failing to realize when they take a look at the system. And they they also never show what what this person had to sacrifice to get. You know, well, go ahead. Yeah, they they also never they also never point out what they had to sacrifice, what they had to, you know, what principles did this person or this institution have to to throw out the window to become a, a quote unquote success story. You know, they they never talk about that aspect. They always show the material. Well, you know, he was living in his car, and now he has this, uh, you know, twenty room house and seventeen cars and this and that. But well, what did this person sacrifice? You know, and that's no. I know what you mean, and I remember not long ago Will Smith did that film that was based on a true story or whatever. Um, you know, are, is, is that what you were bringing up, Adrian? Is it kind of like that? I mean, you know what I'm talking about. I can't remember the name of it, but it's about this black guy, you know, and he was having trouble getting a job, and you know, um, and they just make it this really big success story, and you know, they leave out the fact that you know, in order to be able to do what he did. He got a lucky break, you know. It, oh, because he got that job at the the Wall Street investment uh, office or something like that. Right. And he wasn't qualified at all, and he just, yeah, he kept trucking and he made it through with his son. Yeah, you know, it's it's good to see those success stories, but it's just not realistic to 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 get everybody to have the belief that, you know, that could be you if you just try really hard. Because there's, there's millions of people in this country that are trying really hard, and there's just nowhere for them to go. You know, and that that's – I think that it's not to take away from what that guy did, but it's just like what those films do and those stories do is they serve us to essentially perpetuate – this notion that if you work hard enough, you'll be fine, you know, and, and they leave out what could have happened. Because for that guy, for that one guy who managed to get into that investment brokerage job, how many other guys who ended up homeless stayed homeless? Well, it's, it's obvious. Well, it's obvious just by looking at the long line that he waited in when he got that job, when he went in for the interview. I mean, there was like a hundred people standing in line for that one position, and he got it. Yep. You know, and it was all because of things that he did to stand out, like being able to solve the Rubik's cube really quickly. You know, things like that that impressed them. This is another thing that, this is another problem that I, I see that has to do with the politics of the situation that I don't think people recognize, is that, um, like for example, this guy just like blew up the blog sphere of the video game. Uh, creators, because there's a disgruntled employee who just found out that he's going to be laid off. So he created a uh, um, he created a blog like an alter ego so that he can tell the truth about what's happening at this company called Bioware. And uh, Bioware currently has the uh, the new Star Wars game coming out. So a lot of us were watching it. But the the thing is though, is he tells the story that you so commonly hear, which is that the people who are promoted within the company were not promoted on the basis of their competence. They were pro promoted on the basis of their ability to kiss ass. I mean, I, I hate to say it, but it's just, it's that blunt. And looks. Looks also is a huge thing. Yep. And it's... If you're fat and uh, um, not so attractive looking. Yeah, you, you better have a glowing personality like, like me, for example. 
Because <laughs> I'm fat. But um, <laughs> but, but the issue, I mean, the funny thing is I, I still get the girls, and it's because of my glowing personality. <laughs> <laughs> nah, it's, it's when you hold up those big two-handed sores. The girls love that. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> compensating for something. <laughs> yeah. In, in any case, um, we're not going to in any way point out the irony that, that, that there's a certain racial profile going on here that, that, that you're challenging my size and has nothing to do with, you know, anything, right? Your size? What, what are you talking I said holding up a sword. What are you right, talking about? Right, right, of course. Never mind. <laughs> I love that stuff. Anyway. Well, you know, you know that it's how they, you were talking about how they leave this, this aspect out. And, and it's the same it's the same thing with economics where they, you know, the argument about how competition drives development, which, okay, yeah, if you take it on the, on, the, on the basis of that, you're right. But it doesn't go further enough and say, well, okay, let's compete, let's compete. And what's, what does it always result in? It re- results in monopolies. Uh, it results in, you know, and, okay, for, me to, for our company to be successful, okay, great. What does that mean? We must destroy every other company. Right. So, you know, they never like to talk about, you know, th- that side of it. They say, it, okay, which, which they're correct. Okay, yeah, competing. I can see where they get that assumption. And if you take it and, on the face value, they're correct. But let's go further and say, okay, well, for this company to succeed at, at its competition, what must happen on well, the other side? Well, they don't like to talk about that. To talk about to to expand on that point, you just mentioned Bioware and it snapped uh, snapped into my head. Um, uh, there was a game uh, called uh, Warhammer Online that Mythic Entertainment uh, came out with, That's and what this it was did about, actually. Yeah, it didn't do too well. And but Bioware was doing really well, but Mythic was just about to tank, and so uh, Bioware and Mythic merged, turned into one company. So now instead of two companies, there there's one, which is the goal of capitalism. You know, it's to to basically destroy the competition, come out on top, and that's what Bioware did. Now to further even further compound on the compounded already compounded point, <laughs> this this point's very compounded now. Um, as far as like competition is concerned, um, one that's one of the things they tell you. Like if you watch once again Capitalism: A Love Story, Michael Moore went and talked to all these major corporations about the various. Uh, I mean, mind you, talked is a loose term. He generally, if he was lucky, somebody would come down and talk to him. Usually, they just escort him off the property. <laughs> but um, you know, he'd say, "You realize that you closed down, you know, ten thousand, twenty thousand jobs, et cetera, et cetera." You know, how do you feel about that? And the corporate answer is always to say, well, we need to be competitive for the sake of our shareholders. Translated, um, our competition, well, they went and moved all their labor to China. So if we're going to compete with them and offer competitive prices, we also have to use outsourced labor in China. They don't, they don't say that. They just, they just stop it. Well, we need to be competitive. They don't explain what that mm-hmm. means. And, and the bottom line of what it means is other than the, 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 the bottom line of rent is too damn high is the fact that um, <laughs> wages are too damn low. <laughs> so, um, Well, for the past, I'd say probably about 
15 to 20 years uh, before the, the economic downturn, of course, uh, things were going pretty well. I'd say before before 9-11, uh, things were on the up and up. You know, uh, people were making money. Uh, the the wage to expense um, disparity wasn't too wasn't too large. Um, things were going rather well, and it, it just it's just now since things are taking a turn for the worse, and we have this this large wealth of information available to everyone that people are starting to figure out that that you know this crap does not work it's not working and something needs to change and i think that's why uh the venus project uh is is having this huge leap forward that it's having yep and <sighs> You know, this has been an awesome conversation. Thank you guys for tuning in tonight. Um, and uh, I hope everybody enjoyed the show, particularly all those of you who have tuned in out to the archives to hear the last, like, so many minutes. Uh, any closing thoughts from you, Eric? Uh, no, one thing. At one point, uh, you were talking about um, – I'm sorry, I forgot your name. Uh, you are talking about who, – who is? what's the name of the other guy? I'm sorry. Uh, Adrian. Adrian, sorry, mate. Um, you were talking about the school thing and how they're not critically thinking. And so, I, I call it associative reasoning because critically thinking, I mean, everybody thinks they, they think critically. What I see is people don't associate. They don't have any associative reasoning. They don't know how to associate this ideology with this statement. There's, there's no association. It's just dogma, dogma. And people think that, you know, um, they're thinking critically. Of course, everybody thinks that. Yep. To think otherwise would think uh, would make them feel uh, a bit terrible. Well, anytime you uh, kind of destroy someone's worldview or attempt to do it, uh, it's it's a threatening feeling and it's very uncomfortable. And I went through it when when I when I actually started looking looking into my religion. I, I was um a born again Christian. Uh I wouldn't say any evangelist Christian or anything like that, but I, I was a born again Christian and I did go to church a lot when I was uh in my teens growing up. And uh one of the hardest things I ever had to do was go against my own indoctr- uh, indoctrination by myself. I had to uh, to to get past my fixed world view by myself. That was like one of the most hardest things to do. And yeah, it's it's very uncomfortable. Yeah. So, all right, guys. Thanks again for coming on. I'm going to go ahead and end this segment of V Radio. Thanks for having me, Neil. No problem, Adrian. Anytime you guys want to call in, you let me know. You help me make this show interesting. And uh, excellent, guys. All right. Good to meet you, Adrian. All right, guys. Later, buddy. Later. I will end up talking to you briefly off the air, but um, I'm going to leave uh, listeners with uh, some parting words from Jacques Fresco and Roxanne Meadows. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jacques Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio.